Welcome to the first ever episode of You, Me and. Today we're joined by Ryan Baldy, a freelance sports journalist who's written for BBC, Guardian and The Independent, among many others. My name is Tom Bedell and today we are discussing the great Ronaldo Luis Nazario de Lima. To you and I, Ronaldo, O Phenomeno, R9 and in latter years, sadly, Fat Ronaldo, but to many people, the original Ronaldo. Ryan, how are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? This is a, the first in a series, we're hoping, of podcasts that are looking back at great players of the 90s. Obviously, the, 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 the elephant in the room here is that Ronaldo spanned kind of two decades through the 90s and the 2000s. He was one of the, the very best of, of his era, I think it's fair to say. Ryan, just before we get too far into it what are your kind of abiding memories of Ronaldo uh, obviously in recent years probably derided a little bit unfairly for weight gain and you know injuries and what have you which we're not going to talk too much about because we want to remember the very best of the man but what what how do you remember him if if I throw that name to you Ronaldo oh phenomenon for me as, as one of the most talented footballers I think who's ever lived um I was uh probably around 10, 9 or 10, when he was, when he was kind of at his peak at, at Barcelona and then on, in, on into Inter at the, towards the end of that decade in the 90s. And um, I think it's really striking how that knee injury that, that, that he received, and we'll go on to talk about it, he picked up in November 99. It, it cuts right through the middle of his career. And it kind of it hits right in millennium as well, which is kind of interesting. He's got these, the delineation of, of two really distinct and different parts, phases of his career. Um, he was hugely successful in each, but a very different mm-hmm. players. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that. It's inevitable that we have to discuss the injuries because they really do, if not define him, then they're, 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 they're sort of punctuation marks, I guess, in his career at various stages. And it's it's inevitable that you wonder, as good as he was and as, you know, as the name suggests, as phenomenal as he was, quite how good he could have been without them um, at, at various stages. So before we go too far, I'm just going to a very, very brief overview of his phenomenal uh, list of achievements uh, for teams and individually because if I did them all I'd be, we'd be here all day and that would be your podcast but in Europe he won the he won he won two cups with PSV Eindhoven he won the Copa del Rey the UEFA Cup Winners Cup and Supercopa de España with Barcelona he won the UEFA Cup with Inter Milan with Real Madrid he won the Liga the Intercontinental Continental Intercontinental Cup uh, Supercopa de España, and then back with Corinthians in Brazil, he won the Campeonato Paulista and the Copa de Brazil. With the national team, he won two World Cups. He was a runner-up once. He won two Copa Americas. He was a runner-up another time. The Confederations Cup and third place at the Olympic Games in 1996. Individually, three-time FIFA World Player of the Year, European Golden Shoe winner in '97. Two-time Ballon d'Or winner, Serie A Football of the Year in 1998, UEFA Cup Most Valuable Player in the 1998 final, UEFA Club Footballer of the Year in 98, UEFA Club Best Forward 98, FIFA World Cup Golden Ball 98, FIFA World Cup All-Star Team twice, FIFA World Cup Top Assist Provider. Don't know how that one slipped in there. I was just doing a copy and paste job from Wikipedia. Inter Milan Player of the Year 98, again, another one that I didn't mean for. FIFA World Cup Golden Shoe in 2002, FIFA World Cup Silver Ball in 2002, and FIFA World Cup Final MVP in 2002. A lot of those awards and trophies, I think, probably fit into, uh, as we sort of alluded to, distinct periods in his career. Um, We're going to talk about the very uh, broad brushstrokes of his career, I think, in this podcast, because otherwise it would be quite difficult to cover everything. So starting apart then with the beginning of his career in Europe, already a success in his homeland. He joined PSV Eindhoven in July of 94. He could have joined Ajax, but they already had Patrick Cliver and... I wonder how different history might have been had he gone there and had to play second fiddle to Cliver. When we think of Ronaldo coming to Europe uh, and kind of bursting onto the scene, what sort of what sort of impression did he make originally, and how well known was he at that point? I guess to to European audiences, Ryan. Well, we're talking about the kind of pre-YouTube age here. Um, he was probably known to the football aficionado. He certainly would have been well known within the game. I think a lot of the top clubs you mentioned, Ajax, also his interest from 
from Italy as well in Serie A, which he would later go on to, to join. But um, at, at that time in '94, Serie A was the league um, around the world, the you know the glamour division where all the all the best players played. And there was interest, I believe, from from like some AC Milan, Juventus. So the real, the really top draw clubs knew who this guy was. He was. What strikes me about this period of his career, he breaks through at Cruzeiro at 16. And yeah. it seems like just from the off, he was world class, which is kind of unheard of. I know, you know, you go back to Pele scoring twice in the, in the 58 World Cup final as a 17 year old. But it's so rare for someone to, to try to instantly be a world beater. He scored um, something quite ridiculous. I think it's 44 goals in 47 games in yeah, two seasons right. at Cruzeiro. So he's just from the off, he was this absolute phenomenon. Um, there's never been a more fitting nickname for a player. Um, he was just, you know, all pace, all you know, two-footed, step-overs, tricks, burst through midfield with, with three players hanging off his shirt. He, he was that from the very beginning. He would go on to round out his game, particularly when he joined Inter, but right from the off, he was just one of the, you know, one of the, the top players in the world. I mean, a real prospect for, for Brazil, you know, straight in the national team. They put him in the, in the World Cup squad in 94, even though he, he stayed an unused substitute. He was there to learn at the feet of, of guys like Romario Babeto. And, of course, Romario played for, I think, about six years at PS3 before he joined yeah, Barcelona. Right. And, um, and I think it was Romario who, who advised him to join PS3 as, as a kind of a good stepping stone club to join um, in Europe uh, before going on to join one of the real big dogs. Um, so I think that was kind of a key sort of transition period in his career. But, but like you said, straight away, he hit the ground running. It was brilliant in his first season. Um Scored a lot of goals straight away. I think he he he, uh, he totaled 54 and 57. If we're just looking at the numbers for his two seasons, but of course he was injured in his second, which we're going to talk about. But still scored 19 and 21 in that season. He just just ridiculous goal scoring record, and the types of goals he was scoring was, was, was catching the eye. And I think the kind of the wider world started to take note while he was at PSV, um, and evidenced by the fact that, that that Barcelona were willing to pay world record for him at that point. Um, so. Yeah, a great stepping stone sort of club for him, somewhere he could really go and announce himself a league where it's, it's traditionally the, the Dutch league has been one uh, that's been really sort of lends itself to the, the development of young players, and um, he fits right into that. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of players, it's, it's quite a good uh, stepping stone. I'm just going to use your word there for, for players coming from South America, particularly, and I'm right up to this day, you know, more than, more than 20 years later, I think that's still the case. You mentioned there a particular type of goal that Ronaldo likes to score, and I think. If we all close our eyes and think of a Ronaldo goal, we can picture something very similar. Do you want to just talk us through that kind of archetypal goal? There's one in particular I can, I'm going to talk about later from his time at Barcelona. But it, as a general point, the 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 if he had to trademark a goal, what what would it look like? Yeah, I guess you'll be speaking about the Compostela goal. Um, yeah. There's also you know, the Valencia goal as part of the hat-trick against Valencia. But yeah, that, that sort of goal where he's just racing through midfield. Of, uh, it's it's, it's a, a really unique combination of kind of brute force, but also incredible skill and, and, and deftness of, of his feet. Um, the thing that, the, the one sort of abiding, abiding memory of Ronaldo that I have of his, that early part of his career is his incredible footwork. And, you know, the foot speed mm. he had, the way he would manipulate the ball away from defenders, lure them in, and, you know, it'd be through their legs and it'd be away. Um, so he was, this, he was this very physical, powerful, and athletic striker who could, who could you know, maintain full-pace dribbles for, for 40, 50 yards, and, and often would. Um, but he was also incredibly skilled and with a real deftness of touch. And mm. uh, I think that the combination of that, I don't think I've ever quite seen anything like that. Um, it's usually you know you get you get more to one side than the other. You know you get someone who's all touch, but perhaps not as physically imposing. But Ronaldo had it all, um, and, and the, goal, the type of goals he was scoring, he'd, he'd be racing. He'd often go around the goalkeeper as well, which is was yeah exactly trait he had. Um, so obviously he made, made the finish easier. If you can go around the goalkeeper, you've got an open goal to aim at. Um, Two footed as well, so he could go either way. He, he had a really powerful striker and powerful and accurate. Um, so. Yeah, if he had the ball anywhere within sort of 40, 50 yards of goal, this guy was a threat. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think then you hit on something there that I was going to mention myself that whether it's lazy reporting or, or something else, I don't know. But quite often this day and age, we talk about players being strong and you know powerful and all brute force or deft of touch, very skillful, very pacey, very nimble. He genuinely had both. And although he kind of, I think, gradually filled out from the, you remember him at PSV and he was quite skinny, you know, didn't really fill albeit baggy shirts of the 1990s. He, 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 he grew up to become a very powerful, 
in physique and in upper body strength, but he pretty much always, while at his pomp at least, maintained that pace. And I think that was what made him that kind of, I guess, dual threat sort of figure as a striker that we, as you say, don't necessarily see these days. I think if you look at the kind of preeminent forwards now, you would say they fit into one camp or the other, but he, he certainly straddled both. And that was what made him quite as impre- impressive as he was. Um, you touched on it and we've said several times now we're going to talk about it, but injuries, he suffered that first injury there. And I guess at the time, injuries of that severity, it was, his, it was a knee injury uh, and that ruined most of his second season in Holland. At that time, they were a bigger deal, I guess. And, you know, it wasn't the kind of cut and dried, oh, you'll be fine. You'll come back from that, you know, six to nine months kind of thing that it is now when, when players suffer serious knee injuries, was it? No, yeah, it's it more of um, if, if they weren't quite the career ender that they had been sort of 10, 20 years earlier, there were still career affecting injuries. So if you pick up a serious knee injury, the, the level of medical science wasn't quite where it is now, whereby often with, with um, ACL injuries, we see players back within sort of six to nine months. And, and quite regularly, we see very little effect um, going forward. But mm. it, it used to be much more of, a, of an issue, much more of a, uh, a kind of often a player would have to change the way they play. Um, there would perhaps be a loss of mobility, um, perhaps even a kind of learning to retrust their, their knee again uh, in yeah, challenges exactly. and things like that. But but with this first one, the first injury he picked up, uh, it wasn't quite as serious as the, as the later ones by all accounts. No. Um, and he did, he, you know, he bounced back pretty quickly um, at Barcelona. So, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. I think, you know, when we think of Ronaldo's knee injuries, we often think of of his time at Inter where, where he was really struck down and, and missed the best part of three seasons. Um, but perhaps, you know, that, that, that early one picked up at PSV might have been a factor too, might have, you know, weakened that, that mm-hmm. joint. And I do remember at the time there was this kind of cold science opinion that, as you mentioned, that when he started to fill out at around kind of 19, 20, 21, that um, perhaps he was growing too too quickly for his joints. I don't know if there's any medical expertise to back that up, but I do remember at the time that was the kind of a conversation around him. Um, yeah, just something to... To consider, perhaps. Um, I, I don't know whether there's anything behind that, though. I think there's been a lot of discussion about that, hasn't there? And we'll, I guess we will never know, but there, there could very well be some correlation. Um, July 96, he moves on. He's outgrown the Eredivisie, joins Barcelona for 19.5 million euros, which sounds, obviously, knowing the player he is, and, you know, in now in 2020, sounds like an absolute pittance, uh, the steal of the century, but obviously at the time, is a not insignificant amount of money and was indeed a world record. Scored 47 in 49, won the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup, the Copa del Rey and the Supercopa de España, the Pachichi for most goals in La Liga, the European Golden Shoe, and until 2008 was the most recent player to have scored 30 times in a single La Liga season. If his spell with PSV Eindhoven was kind of introducing him to Europe and was the stepping stone, this was where he became a genuine world power, right? This was where he put his name up in lights with the other kind of leading players of that era as a real one of the absolutely, you know, cast iron world-class players of the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. This was, you know, he became a superstar at Barcelona. There was absolutely no doubt about who was the best player in the world at this point. Um, he just, he, he owned that distinction all by himself. There was no, there was, you know, there was no debate around. I remember quite clearly at the time. I think you know throughout throughout the last well throughout football is often you, know, you, you can make a good argument for who you consider to be the best player in the world over the last 10, 15 years. Is it Messi or Ronaldo? Um, was it Zidane or Ronaldinho in the early two thousands? But that sort of period of that that sort of Ronaldo sweet spot between um, ninety six to ninety eight, ninety nine time um, there was really really no debate it was Ronaldo nobody could do what he could do um, and at Barcelona that's where that really it gave him the, the stage that his kind of talent was was always always destined for um, and yeah. you know he, he didn't disappoint and we, we're talking about a very competitive La Liga 2 Barcelona didn't win the league that year um, no second to Real Madrid um, they, 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 they did put in a 90 point season so they're very unlucky not to win the league but they did score 102 league goals <laughs> and um, yeah. you know, no no you know, no, there's no mistake about it that Ronaldo played a, a huge part in that. Um, 
yeah, just, just ridiculous numbers that he was putting up, numbers that we you know we hadn't really seen at that kind of level before. You had guys like Jardel at, at Porto putting up similar scoring statistics, but this was uh, one of the you know, very top leagues in the world for one of the best teams competing at the highest level every week. And and, and again, the, the, the kind of goals he was scoring were just breathtaking. So you'd, you'd watch um, watch the Spanish football on Sky at the time in the UK, and you, you were tuning in to watch Ronaldo. He was he was the guy. He was the one you wanted to see. He was the one you you knew that any moment could produce the kind of the kind of whether it was a dribble, whether it was a goal, whether it was just a just a flash of, of brilliance to make um to make a bit of space for himself. He was producing moments that you were going to remember forever, almost on a weekly basis. And you say obviously Serie A was probably the league to be at the time, but it, it certainly wasn't a bad uh, Barcelona team. <laughs> and looking at the league table now, as you say, Real Madrid won it with 92 points, two points ahead of Barca. Barca actually won more games, scored more goals and had a better goal difference. And, uh, you know, the, you, you look at the squad list there and obviously Pep Guardiola is the, probably one of the ones that stands out. Luis Figo, Christo Stoichkov, etc. Laurent Blanc, etc. etc. There are names, Luis Enrique, Robert Prozanecki, wherever you look in that team. And it's it's the same with, um, it's the same with Bar- uh, Real Madrid as well. How strong was La Liga and, and how much was a, of a step up was it, I suppose, from the Eredivisie to go from playing in a league like that to a league like La Liga, saying league a lot here, in, in such a short space of time and still very young at that point, I think it would be. I mean, it was big, but at the same time, there wasn't quite the gulf um, that there is mm-hmm. now between La Liga, between one of the, you know, any of the big four or five leagues and any of those below them because... You know, yeah, that that year he joined PSV. Ajax went on to win the Champions League. Um, of course, got to reached yeah. the final again the following season. So, you know, clubs of that 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 um, that nature are able to compete on the European stage in a way that they haven't really been able to since. Um, you know, we talk about that great Ajax side where you know, they had Cliver in their team, but in that '95 final, and they started with Ronald De Boer up front. Um, so you can imagine Ronaldinho, uh, Ronaldo fitting into the number nine role in that team and making them even better. You know, they went on to reach the final the next year, but we could have been talking about a team that won three or four in a row until they, until they moved, you know, being fed by Yori Littman. And I think if if, uh, if anything, that move to PSV robbed us of, of being able to see uh, a Littman and Ronaldo tandem for the ages there. But yeah, so it, it was it was a step up to go to La Liga, but um, as we said, that kind of, as a stepping stone league, as a stepping stone team to join PSV, which is perfect for him because it wasn't as huge of a golf as it is now. I think mm-hmm. if you get a young uh, South American player joining a Dutch team now, then going on to sign for somebody like Barcelona, I think it, it is more of a, a daunting step up. Whereas, not not that he would have worried. Yet. I think you know he was already an established international with Brazil. He's already tearing teams apart, left, right, and centre. So I think he knew he knew how good he was. He just you know was ready to show show the rest of the world how good he was. And we've mentioned it touched on it already but the goal versus Compostela um, seek it out on YouTube if you haven't seen it before or you can't remember it it's absolutely phenomenal he takes the ball from the halfway line beats however many men into the area still has to throw in a couple of tricks to get get off the room to shoot and the thing that strikes me about it versus now is it probably been pulled back for a foul in this day and age right back on the halfway line where he's on the receiving end of some pretty uh, agricultural, I think, defending. That was that was him in a nutshell, wasn't it? It was, you know, the pace, the power, the trickery, and equally the sheer bloody-mindedness to, yeah. to keep going when, you know, these days we're just used to players going down. And that's one of the, the ways in which I think um, there are similarities between him and Messi in the way that, mm. you know, they're not going to let you just hack them down. They're too good for you even to hack down. If they want to stay on their feet, while you're kicking them to bits, then they will, and they will still beat you. Um, you know, you mentioned the baggy shirts of the '90s earlier. You, you could really see it was really clear how, how often people were throwing <laughs> his shirts when he was on these runs because there was so much of that shirt. They had a fistful of it, and it still wasn't stopping him. He had too much pace, too much power, too much skill. There was just, you know, it must have felt really just just futile coming up against this guy. Um, there was literally nothing you could do within or without the laws <laughs> to stop him. <laughs> If he, if he wanted to go and score from the halfway line, he was going to do that. He was just the the, the, the big kid on the playground, um, but, but doing That's it at, at the top of La Liga. And, you know, this yeah. Compostela team, they were hardly a, a vintage side of La Liga, but they weren't weren't terrible. They were you know, mid-table that year. Um, yeah. Just looking at the table now, they finished 11th out of, out of uh, 22, so they're right in the middle of the table. It wasn't a completely terrible side. Um, and, yeah, he was just tearing them apart. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it was the hat-trick against Valencia as well, where that, there was that one really... Um, 
kind of stark goal that, that is one of the highlights of his career where he just ran through a gap that wasn't there when the two defenders converged on him uh, at the same time he put the ball between them and as they, as they came together he just burst between the two of them um, yeah. it, was, uh, it kind of reminds me of if you ever see the introductions at a Super Bowl where often kind of the players will burst through a big paper sheet and <laughs> onto, yes. onto the field it's kind of like that he's announcing they'll just burst in between these two players and threw on goal to go and score and a really cool finish at the end of it he was just a guy who it's, it's a cliche but he was he was unstoppable if he, whatever he wanted to do on the pitch he could do and there's very little you could do about it absolutely and fitting then I think at the end of uh, 97 he won his first Ballon d'Or who were the kind of contemporaries at that point that he was up against who were the real the stars of that era that he came out on top and I think no one would argue that given what he did individually and what he helped Barcelona to achieve and as you say quite a well remembered team despite not winning the title under Bobby Robson um, you know it was it was a hell of a year for him and on the international uh, on the international front as well, he had uh, the Confederations Cup in the summer of '97 under under his belt as well. Yeah, no, it was, it was a that that particularly in Serie A, there were there were a, a litany of talent. Was guys like uh, Del Piero was really kind of coming towards the peak of his powers. He was a similar player in, in that he peaked very early and injuries mm-hmm. kind of changed the kind of player he was later on. Uh, you guys like that. Um, yeah, those you talk about the great man size. George Weah won won the Ballon d'Or just a couple of years before that. It's interesting as well that the Ballon d'Or of '96, Ronaldo um, was runner up in that one um, mm-hmm. to uh, Matthias Sammer, who'd won Euro '96 with um, with Germany, but he missed that by just one point. He was beaten by just one point in the voting um, in, in the kind of weighted voting system. It, there was there's only one point. I, I I think I'm right in saying that's the closest it's ever been. Um, I could be wrong on that, but. Um, cool, good knowledge. Yeah, it was kind if of, you're right. So he very nearly had three three battles. He had three FIFA World Player of the Years, which that's right. Time, yeah. I remember. I remember at the time that being kind of the bigger one. Uh, maybe I'm misremembering that, but as, as well, a young kid in that era. That's it. I was going to ask you about this because obviously there's been rejigging and reformatting of all these awards over over the years. But what did it carry the weight that it does now? Because obviously there's a lot of attention on the kind of Messi Ronaldo. Head to head, and the, the the fact that they've both got five each now, I think I'm right yeah. in saying, was it the big deal that it was then, and the fact that it wasn't just dominated by two guys, you know, there was there was such a um, a spread, I suppose, of winners. Yeah, in that and time. the Ballon d'Or always had a history because I think it had been around since the '60s, if I'm, if I'm mm. not mistaken, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, so it always had a greater history than the World Player of the Year, which came into effect, I think, '90 and '91. I think Matthias Sammer won the first one after Germany won the World Cup. Um, but the the Ballon d'Or uh, for for the first few decades of its existence was exclusively uh, a European award. It's for European yes. players. It was known as the European Footballer of the Year award. And it later went on to encompass um, players from anywhere in the world who played in Europe. Yeah. Um, before then, you know, as it is now, it's kind of a World Player of the Year award. It's effectively the same thing uh, as as the FIFA World Player. But yeah, I remember at the time the FIFA World Player of the Year award kind of did seem to denote the, the very best player in the world, whereas. Often the Ballon d'Or would, would be given to a guy who, who maybe had a really good season. If you know, if, if that makes any sense, so like yeah, guys like Michael Owen winning it um, mm. in, in uh, 2001. Um, you can yeah. get those kind of slightly more odd uh, recipients. I think um, Pavel, Pavel Nedved beat uh, Ronaldinho to it one year. So it's kind of it's a different sort of thing. It felt, it felt almost like it would perhaps reward um, great performance in a single season rather than anointing the very best player in the world, uh, regardless yeah. of you know, which is kind of kind of what it does now. I think. Um, so yeah, yeah, but yeah, he was. But by this point, he was racking up the awards. He was the undisputed number one player in the world. Um, and yeah, that's why that's why um, another team came along and paid a world record fee for him. Well, exactly, and you've done my job there really for me with the link to his next move. <laughs> Joins Inter Milan in the summer of '97, 27 million euros this time, which you know a significant uh, markup on on. The the fee that Barcelona paid and said, you know, again, notwithstanding rates of inflation, what have you, a hell of a lot of money. Um, it seems like in this time, and as you've said, Serie A was the, the dominant league, they they could do this, but clubs at that point could just buy the best player from, you know, in a continent in the world, whatever, uh, from another enormous club, which we just don't see these days because of mammoth release clauses and what have you. How much of a stir did this create him leaving La Liga to go to Serie A and play for another, you know, historically huge club? 
it was huge. It was it kind of really sent shockwaves around the football world. It was one of those moments you really remember at the time. Um, uh, he, he Barcelona wanted to keep him. They were willing to offer him a kind of a lifetime deal, and they thought they'd yeah. agreed it. Um, but it broke down, and then Inter came along and paid his release clause. Um, is is it's a requirement of law, I believe, in Spain that every player has to have a release clause. So they came in, they paid it. It probably felt like a kind of prohibitive fee when they first signed him from PSV that, you know, we'll put this in there, no one's going to pay that much for anybody, so we're probably safe. But a year later, when he's put up these ridiculous numbers, had this incredible season, you know, undisputed best player in the world, that kind of figure seems much more much more doable. So Inter came along and paid it. Inter had wanted him um, from PSV as well, I believe. Um, it was between them and Barca to get him back in '96, so they eventually got their man. And yeah, it was huge. He went to Serie A, where, as we mentioned, it was just that was the, the league to be in at the time. It was it was uh, the league that had the money, it was the league that had the glamour, it was the league that had the best players. Um, so he went there. And uh, what was really interesting about Serie A at that time too is that um, you know we might think of La Liga perhaps as being the the, the, the pre the, the premier division <laughs> not, not not premier league tm but you know the, the top yeah. uh, league in the world right now the top destination league where there are only really two teams um who you know players dream of, of playing for now but back there back in seria in the 90s there's more much more of a stratification of the talent there were in any given season there were probably six or seven teams who, who could genuinely consider themselves to having a chance of winning the league yeah you know, right from the, the top of the top from the inters the uves the, the ac milan's down to the fiorentinas and the palmas and the Sampdorias, all had unbelievable teams back in this this period um so it was going to just this hyper competitive league that is i, I don't think we've, we've seen anything like it before or since in terms of the sheer amount of, of talent concentrated in the yeah. league and 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 the the competitiveness of that league as well it was it was incredible um and they also had the highest standard defending as well um yeah so, you know, it was it was just unheard of to go go to Serie A and score 30 get 30 goals a season. You, know, you would see the um, the Capocannonieri being won with like 17 goals in a season or something like that. Um, so to go there and, and do what he did, it, you, you look at the numbers now and you think, well, he scored what 25 goals in that first season. Is that yeah, really that right. impressive? But now that that is that is a phenomenal return for that period. Um, like we said, nobody was particularly dominant. It was such a competitive league. It's, the level of defending was was off the charts. It's not like what we see now where you know, you've got teams like Juventus just dominate and nobody else can compete with them. So no, to, to, to do what he did was, was was remarkable. And he also really rounded out his game at the stage as well. You know, he started taking free kicks, started scoring free kicks, was taking penalties, was, was getting assists more than he ever had before. So he's becoming a more complete player. So not only did he arrive as, as the best player in the world, he went on and got better, which is just quite remarkable considering the, the level he was already at. Yeah. I would, just to add some context, what you're saying there about you know the the competitiveness and the stratification of talent. Looking at the top of Serie A that season, Juventus won it with 74 points. Inter were five points behind them, five points back from Inter in third. Udinese, which I suspect most people wouldn't have guessed, but at the time spearheaded by the goals of Oliver Bierhoff, who actually won the Capocannieri in that first season with 27 goals. And if you look at the the top scorers for that season, the top Five or sorry, top six even all had 20 goals plus, and that was Bierhoff, Ronaldo, Roberto Baggio, Gabriel Battistuta, Alessandro Del Piero, and Vincenzo Montella. And still in the list and in the running, you've got names like Inzaghi, Inzaghi, Hubner, Totti, Crespo, and Nedved. So I think that gives a pretty good idea of the uh, the, the the strength of the league at that time, which, which is just phenomenal. He had injuries at Inter though it wasn't all it was a, it was an electric first season and in, in totally made 68 league appearances for Inter 32 of those came in his first season at this point is it fair to say there were legitimate concerns that he might be a fading force if not kind of washed up by the time he started to have serious knee problems well, it was one of those really kind of tragic situations where he had that first knee injury against Lecce in November of '99, and um, he tried to come back six months later against Lazio, I think it was in a, in a cup game, and he broke down again. And mm. he just really felt for him. You could see the way he went down clutching his knee. It's like he knew that okay, this is this is different. This isn't something I'm going to be able to bounce back from like he did at PSV. Um, I think I might have seen even Diego Simeone. You know, the, the, the pit ball of that Lazio team 
not the most yes, caring individual with regards to opponents was was one of the first to, to attend to him and check on him at that, at that point um yeah so yeah it was it was, it was tragic he was 23 um and he, he would never be as good again. Uh, he missed the best part of the next three seasons. Again, he would, he would try to come back in 1999, uh, 2000, the following season. It was, a, again, kind of an aborted attempt at coming back. He only played eight games that year. Missed the entirety of 2000 uh, to 2001, and then came back very late in uh, the 2001-2002 season. Um, but, yeah, it was one of those situations where you kind of forgot about him as well for a time, which was really, really sad. Um, mm. That status that we mentioned of him being the undisputed best player in the world was gone. It was, it was over to Zidane now after the World Cup and after what he was doing at Juve. Um, Rafael Del at Barcelona was doing doing great things, winning World Player of the Year awards. Um, Figo was emerging. Um, all these guys are kind of coming up in his wake where he was sat on the injured, injured list. Um, yeah. Just becoming a forgotten figure, uh, and you wondered, you know, not not how you know how good he would be when he would come back, but whether he was was going to come back. Um, it was that kind of that serious. He was out for that long. And his struggles were that 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 serious that um, you know, his his career as a whole was in doubt. Well, that's it. And we see players these days have issues like that that kind of rumble on, and they never quite get to the bottom of it, or they have aborted comebacks, or whatever it may be. And with all the medical advances that we've talked about, and the the rise of sports science and what have you and injury prevention and all these things that he wouldn't have had in the late nineties at the end of that decade. And they still don't make it back. So it, it, it's testament to him. I think in, in some respect that he did actually make it back and have, uh, I guess a, a, a sort of second, a second part to his career after that. What I wanted to talk to you before we get to that stage and before we actually leave the nineties and our, our remit here is the 98 world cup. Um, uh, uh, a mixed time. I was going to say a happier time. Uh, mostly it was, but there there was always going to be that asterisk next to his name. Um, he goes into the the '98 World Cup build as you know the greatest player or one of in the world, and you know very much at the the height, the peak of his powers. He's just come off his that fantastic first season with Inter, and is part of a you know a Brazil team not necessarily for the ages, but a pretty bloody good Brazil team at the time. Scores freely in the in the run-up to the final. Um, and then, I guess, can you pick up the story from there? Of the, the World Cup final, obviously, we remember France won in the end, 3-0. But what was the kind of the, the prevailing narrative in the build-up to the final on final day? centered around Ronaldo and, and, and well quite what the hell was going on yeah it was it was a really really unusual time um sitting at home and watching it on tv and trying to follow along um this was supposed to be Ronaldo's world cup and for yes. you know every round but the final it was he was brilliant he was he was just lighting the tournament up um so it comes to the final uh, I believe uh he was rooming with Roberto Carlos at the time and I think the kind of accepted story now, there was a lot of rumour for, for a long time about what had gone on and mm. what had happened to him. But I think um, it's more accepted now what happened was that he had a seizure in his room. Um, yeah. Completely unexplained. Nobody before or since could point to any sort of conditions that would lead to him to have the seizure. You, know, you could speculate whether it was something to do with the pressure he was under um, or anything like that. But they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, the day of the final, it was all kind of still under wraps. Um, then the team sheet came out initially and had Edmundo starting up front um, with right. Ronaldo on the bench. And there's a real kind of hysteria. I remember the, the kind of you know, people wondering what was going on, uh, watching the coverage on, on BBC. And, you know, they were speculating what had happened, whether this was a mistake. And a few minutes later, you know, the team sheet comes back with a correction that no Ronaldo is starting now. Um, so all eyes were on him already before you know it was supposed to be his mm-hmm. final. This is his anointing him as one of the all-time greats. So we were watching him anyway, but now we were watching him more closely for slightly different reasons, wondering what, what, what quite was going on. And he just had the most anonymous game. He wasn't wasn't himself at all. That sharpness that defined him was was absent completely. Um, you know, we, at the time we didn't know why. Uh, it's not slowly the information dripped out in later years. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, went on to be Zidane's final. He scored the two goals and a very, very comfortable you know, 3-0 win for, for France um, on home soil. And uh, yeah, it was it was a, a strange time for Ronaldo, uh, for Brazil. You can tell the whole team were affected by that moment too. Um, almost, it's kind of like similar to the shell shock of uh, the Brazil team faced in the 2014 World Cup when, when Neymar picked up his back injury. Yeah. And he kind of slept walked through that game against Germany after that and lost 7-1. 
wasn't as embarrassing as that, um, but it was a kind of similar feeling where the whole team were clearly dealing with something and not able to focus um, and play to their best because they knew that their best player, this, you know, he's it's, it's still a young guy. I think he was what, 22 at the time. Um, yeah. Was uh, was going through something that, that, that nobody really knew whether he was going to be okay, whether he was going to make it through the game without collapsing again. Um, it was kind of, you know, looking back and he should never have played. Um, but you, you, know, you do empathise with the position of the coaches because he's the star of world football. <laughs> he, you know, he has, to, he has to play in the World Cup final. Um, but yeah, it was really just such a bizarre situation to to watch unfold. And it's one that, it, it's, it's a shame in many ways that this player that I think... Um, probably had a higher ceiling than, than any other young player who's come through ever, even perhaps more even than, than Messi. If you watch them, mm. you know, watch watch every player, every elite player in the world at, at 17, 18, I think he was at a higher level than, than probably anyone we've seen. And, you know, he, you know the, the world was was there for, for the taking for him, the world of football. Um, but now when we look back on his career, we look back at a couple of kind of tragic moments also, almost, though, you know, a couple yeah, of exactly. what could have, he's, he's the ultimate what could have been because there's that World Cup final, you know, if that seizure hadn't have happened, you got to think that Brazil would have been much more competitive. They were the better side, really. Um, they, they should have, they were expected to win that game and you, know, you would expect Ronaldo to be lifting that World Cup um, four years sooner than he you got to, and of course, he, he was a World Cup winner from '94, but he was an unused substitute in that yeah. in that tournament. That was Romario's World Cup. Romario and Babetto up front. Um, so this really should have been his moment. And then, of course, the knee injuries at Inter, the, the time spent on the sidelines. It's, it's just, it's really, it's just such a shame that a guy came with such talent and with such exuberance as well. You know, a playing style that really kind of brought smiles to people's faces and got people out of their seats. That he was cut down by by no fault of his own. Um, I'm sure, you know, we'll go and touch on it. He did amazing things once he came back. He was still a phenomenal player, but yes. it's a shame that he's remembered for, you know, for the things that, that happened to him rather than the things that he was able to do. And we're certainly going to go on to those, uh, the latter years with Brazil and the, the, the redemption in 2002 and what have you. Just quickly touching on, uh, I guess, you know, asking you to look into your, not crystal ball because it's the past, but something like that. It was it was a hell of a Brazil team. Still, you know the names roll off the tongue: Cafu, Aldair, Roberto Carlos, Dunga, Rivaldo, Babeto, Ronaldo, and on the bench, Edmundo, Danilson. You know, names that we know for good for good reasons. Um, had matters been different, had Ronaldo not had this uh, issue in the build-up, and you know, I think we've, there's probably still more that we don't know potentially, even if there is now an accepted version. Would it have been different, the final? And would, I guess, what follows have been different as well? Because obviously, 2000, France win the European Championships again. Zidane, you know, a household name, what have you. And, you know, goes a long way, not to launching his career, but, you know, progressing his career as well. What might have changed? Or am I, you know, speculating about something of nothing that it wouldn't have made a vast amount of difference had the the game gone the other way and Ronaldo not had this this issue in the build up to the final. No, I think he might have of course, you know, he might might well have gone on to pick up the same knee injuries in the following year at Inter, but um you know, he definitely would have it would have been another World Player Year Ballon d'Or title in ninety eight if Brazil had gone on to win that World Cup. Um because obviously Sudan won that in the end, uh having announced himself in the final. Um yeah, it would Zidane have been at that level that early as well? Because he hadn't had a great World Cup. He got sent off in the early stages for a stamp. So well, he exactly. two or three games. You know, he, he showed up in the final. He was one of these, you know, he's one of the all-time great big game players. But he didn't have a great tournament. He was much better throughout the whole tournament in Euro 2000 than the 2006 World Cup. Um, but he's kind of more remembered for the, the two goals in the final for France in 98. Um, so, yeah, you know, he, Ronaldo would have clung on to his, his position as, as uh, the, the top dog in, in world football for longer. Um, added to his legend yet more, um, but yeah, who knows what would have what would have happened um, with uh, with his knees going forward anyway. Um, but yeah, I think that that Brazil side would have perhaps been remembered more more fondly than they are, and um, mm-hmm. slightly less of a, of a footnote because uh, they did reach three World Cup finals in a row. They won two of them, but um, yeah. you can make the argument that that '98 side was probably the, the best of the three because um, you had Ronaldo at the peak of his powers, you had Rivaldo coming through, you had. Danielson who was starting to make make a name for himself in, in the world stage. Um, Romario was still kicking around, still scoring goals. So yeah, really good, really good side who um, might well have been remembered as one of the all-time greats had they gone on to have won that World Cup. Exactly. So 
reverting to club matters after such an explosive time at Inter, it's obviously a crying shame to see how things panned out for him and the injuries. But the silver lining is that he got back to some level of, you know, well, some level probably doesn't do it justice, but, you know, he got back to being able to perform and move to join Real Madrid, move back to Spain, join Real Madrid in the summer of 2002 uh, for 46 million euros this time. How big a splash did that make at the time? Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo joining the Galacticos at that point, they had, you know, Zidane, Figo, Roberto Carlos, they had, and Beckham would come uh, a year later, I think I'm yeah. right in saying, 2003, yeah, yeah, is that right? You know, they were very much in that, you know, we can all picture that white kit mm. and the, was it Siemens Mobile at the time was the, yeah. the kit sponsor and what have you, you know, an iconic team, even if they actually didn't achieve a fraction of what they probably should have. How big a splash did that make? And was there any element of surprise that Real Madrid came in for him, given the the history of problems he'd had in the kind of last three seasons at, at Inter? No, not at all. I think um, the surprise was was the way he came back in the end of Inter. Those last ten games of the season where he came back and was just phenomenal. It was kind of this race against time. Can he, you know, can he prove his fitness in time for the World Cup? Then mm. you know, okay, you know, he's he's, he's definitely shown that he's he's capable of playing in the World Cup. Will he be a starter for Brazil? Is he at that, at that level? Because that wasn't considered a particularly vintage Brazil team at the time. I think they were fourth or fifth favourites for the tournament. Um, and Ronaldo, I think, if I remember rightly, it was something like twenty to one to be the top scorer at that World Cup, which is ridiculous now. He went and scored eight goals. He scored in every game but the game against England. Had a phenomenal World Cup. Um, slight bugbear of mine that he didn't win the Golden Ball in that World Cup went to Oliver Kahn instead uh, who of course threw in a clangor in the final for Ronaldo to score one of his two goals Indeed. Um, so Real Madrid's policy at the time was to, was to buy not just the best player in the world each year but the biggest name and they'd done it with Figo caused a huge flash by taking it from Barcelona and signing Zidane the following year after the World Cup Ronaldo was was player everyone was talking about he'd kind of perhaps briefly but he had kind of regained his phone um, went on to win a Ballon d'Or and World Player of the Year again um, in 2002 after such an incredible World Cup and just a phenomenal story as well that to be able to come back after the best part of three seasons out and mm. to come back at the level he did um, he's a different player which I guess we, we might touch on um, but he was still you know he's still brilliant he's still the best goal scorer best number nine in the world and he proved that at the World Cup so yeah I think the way his star has kind of re-risen again um yeah, you know, his his whole resurrection story meant that he was an obvious target for Real Madrid um, uh, to to be the, the latest Galactico, and they went on to win the league uh, that year, La Liga, and uh, pipping a really plucky and really really good Real Sociedad team to the title. Who looked it looked like Larial were gonna were gonna cause one of the one of the great upsets of of European mm-hmm. football that year with you know Nihat and um, Kovacic up um, up top, um, Kovacic up top. Um, a young Chabi Alonso pulling strings in midfield, really good side, but you know, Ronaldo and, and Real Madrid eventually picked them, and that was it proved to be his only, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, his only league title That's of his correct, career. Yeah. Never won a Champions League, won only one league title, which is kind of remarkable. A huge amount of individual awards, but um, you do wonder if things were different, whether he would have had a Champions League or two, um, a few more league titles uh, in his career. No, absolutely. Um, say kind of changed injuries inevitably changed him and he became a slightly different player talk us through that transition to now to the early 2000s and and, and what Ronaldo of that era was so he looked different he, he carried a bit more a bit more weight he wasn't you know mm. the whole fat Ronaldo tag wasn't applicable at this stage he was still no, absolutely sp- not. a sprightly young man um, <laughs> but but he was he was thicker set uh, his shoulders were broader um, the main difference was that where before he could sustain um, a sprint, a, a, a top speed dribble for 40, 50 yards, he probably only had 10 or 15 in him now. Um, so he was playing much more close close to goal. Um, it was all about being slipped through uh, in behind defences and things like that. He wasn't taking on players as much as he had. You know, he still had quick feet. He still he still could go past the player one on one, but it'd be kind of one quick burst and then a shot. Um, so he was he was still very explosive, but he wasn't he didn't have the kind of endurance with his with his um, explosive work that he had before, where he could sustain it over no, long distances. He, so he, was, he kind of had to refine and, and kind of narrow his game back down. Whereas by the late nineties, he was the complete striker. There was you know, there was very little he couldn't do. He was kind of it felt like he was he was made in a lab 
um, to just be the, 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 the absolute complete modern modern striker. Um, at this stage, he was kind of having to pare his game, game down a little bit more, focus on short sprints in behind, um, getting on the end of things. Uh, you know, he became, for me, perhaps rounded out his finishing a bit more, if anything, a bit more finesse to his finishing. Uh, you, you could always, you know, he's always great at fever foot. Um, he, was, he became really adept at finding space and kind of arriving at the right time to get on the end of things. And then, yeah, it was it was all about what he could do within 20 yards of goal rather than being a threat anywhere in the opposing half. As you say, round out his finishing and certainly didn't make him any less effective, it's probably fair to say, and scored some pretty memorable goals there. The hat-trick against Manchester United in the, the Champions League quarter-final is probably one of the, the defining moments for him. And if we're to believe it, football history as well, because that was allegedly the... Uh, the game that Roman Abramovich fell in love with football, right? And and obviously <laughs> went on to, and that might be an old wives' tale, but this is what we hear, and 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 obviously changed the course of history. Yeah, and uh, Ronaldo was just—he was the guy who made the difference. He was on a different plane at that time, um, with number eleven on his back as well. He just kind of forgot. Yeah, yeah that first season won number eleven because Morientes still had him. Morientes, no, yeah, Morientes yeah. was nine. Yeah, it wasn't until he left that Ronaldo won number nine. Um, Whereas I think these days, when your star player comes, you know, his, his branding is all about R9. I think they would have just given him that, that number. Because, yeah, you know, very true. Yeah. marketing branding is such a big thing. I know, yeah, similar to Cristiano Ronaldo when he first went to, to Real Madrid, he wore the number nine rather than yeah. number seven because Raul was still around. Of course, you know, you're not going to take Raul's number, I think. No. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was still. You, you look back at that, the footage of that game. Um, in the in the black Real Madrid shirt with the number eleven on the back, he does he looks different to it to how he looked three three or four years earlier. Um, but yeah, he's still you know still a phenomenal player. And it, it was these kind of short, like we said, burst away from a defender and get a quick shot off. It was that one goal where you surprised Bartes at the near post by taking a shot early and firing into the bottom corner. And there's the one yeah. from slightly further out at 25 yards that he, he put in the top corner. Um, that it was all it, his work was kind of short, sharp bursts now. Um, but still electrifying still for the next probably two or three seasons. The best striker in Europe, or certainly, you know, competing with Thierry Henry for that for that um that accolade. Um but whether he was the, the overall best player in the world anymore was probably a bit less likely. I think he'd be in eclipsed. Um you know, teammates yeah. Ronaldinho probably went on to take that and Zidane and guys like that were were able to do a bit more um than he was able to at that stage. Yeah. Um Perfect accidental segue there, mentioning Ronaldinho. Just taking a, a step back to the t- summer of 2002, uh, because my lineage is all over the place. The World Cup in Korea and Japan, redemption for Ronaldo in a way, because whilst, as you say, right, say he'd been brilliant and he'd lit up the the 98 World Cup prior to the final. The final obviously overshadowed everything. He was a man on a mission in 2002 and the tournament kind of probably launched Ronaldo perhaps uh, in, into the next the next stratosphere in terms of his club career. But it was also a big one for Ronaldo, finished with the, the golden boot, a second World Cup winner's medal and obviously played a, a far more prominent part this time. And as you said, perhaps not as good a Brazil team, certainly in terms of individuals. What are your memories of him at that World Cup and, and, and how good he was? Yeah, it was a huge moment for his legacy, uh, this one, to get that World Cup. Like we said, the 98 World Cup was supposed to be his World Cup and it was on course to be. But then, you know, I think um, if you think back now uh, to, to the 98 World Cup and you think which player do you associate with this World Cup, it would be Zidane, even though, as we mentioned, didn't have the, the greatest tournament, but he scored the two goals in the final and elevated himself to the level of being one of the best players in the world. Um, so yeah, you, know, you don't really think of it as being Ronaldo's World Cup. Well, this one, this was his World Cup. He, he come back. He was a storyline going into it. You know, how good would he be? He'd, he'd produce some really impressive form for Inter. Would he be able to sustain it on the highest level at the World Cup? And he, and he, and he was. He hit the ground running. Like you said, it wasn't wasn't considered to be a particularly great Brazil team going into it. Uh, weren't hugely fancied. Ronaldinho wasn't the superstar he was going to become just yet. I think he was perhaps just just at the end of his first season at PSG, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, Rivaldo was kind of past his best. Uh, his, his peak was probably two or three years earlier. Uh, yeah, guys like Ed Mielsen in there, you know, decent player, nothing spectacular. Rocky Junior, Marcos in goal. Um, yeah, Caffey was very old by this point. Um, 
Roberto Carlos was still there, of course. So, you know, it was a good team. They didn't have Emerson as well. Their captain Emerson had been injured in, uh, yeah. I think it was in, in training in the build-up. I, I think I could be getting this completely wrong, but I think the story was that he was messing around playing in goal in training and injured his shoulder. So, they, you know, their best defence midfield, the guy who's going to anchor everything and pull the strings and organise everybody, wasn't there. Um, so, I think that's where Cleberson got his opportunity. And I was going to say, yeah, was it Cleberson who came in? Yeah, Cleberson and Gilberto Silva were Gilberto the two guys Silva. anchoring midfield with... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think Kaká was in the squad too, but again, Kaká wasn't. Kaká didn't was play shy. much, did he? No, he was he was like Ronaldo in '94, and I think he was there kind of for the experiences as a young player at Sao Paulo. I don't think he quite got to Inter Milan yet. I think he went just after the tournament. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, yeah, they were kind of there was a lot of potential there with guys like Ronaldinho and uh, and Kaká coming through, but who weren't quite at the at the level they would who they would reach. And then there was also the, the slightly older generation that were coming to the end of things like Cafu, like um, like well, sadly, like like Ronaldo would would be very shortly, like Rivaldo, um, Aldeia, guys like that, uh, Raka Junior, so guys like that. So it was kind of a mishmash of a team who weren't expected to do all that well. France were expected to to go on and win another World Cup, I think, going into France and Argentina, if I'm not right, with the twelve favourites, and they both went out in the groups. So That's was, it. Both misfired spectacularly. Yeah, yeah. but overall, they just kind of took over, took took. The, the tournament by the scruff of its neck and scored in every, like I mentioned scored in every round but the game against England in the quarterfinals like had he scored in that one he would have equaled Jorginho's record of being the only player ever to score in every game that he played in that World Cup um, so yeah eight goals two in the final um, that silly <laughs> that haircut well I was going to say let's talk haircut because we've seen in, in this week just gone Richarlison has paid homage to it by, by shaving to be honest, it looked a little big for me, Richarlison's one, if you've seen it on Instagram, <laughs> the, the wedge haircut. I don't think we've ever known quite why he did it, and it probably doesn't matter too much, but it, it although actually I, I seem to remember something to do with stopping people talking about injury and what have you was kind of thrown around. I don't know if there's any veracity to that. It was nice that this time, you know, after what had happened in 19, all the speculation about why I wasn't in the team sheet, what had happened, the rumours of what might have happened the night before, you know, had he fallen ill, was he going to play? There was a yeah. lot of negativity, a lot of um, apprehension around in the air around that 98 final. This time we are just you know, kind of all joking about his silly haircut. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It was much more of a, of a jovial feel. And yes. It felt like he was going to go there. Cause, again, this wasn't a particularly great German inside either. They'd been carried to the final by Michael Ballack, who was phenomenal in that. Then that suspended, of course. Suspended, so, yeah. you know, they were really expected to go on win that, that World Cup without too much trouble and they did in the end um, so yeah it was nice <laughs> a bit more positivity and uh, to, to be surrounded Ronaldo going into the final this time around I was just going to round that off by saying so that was Brazil's fifth and most recent World Cup as you say finished with the golden shoe and in doing and in doing and in scoring eight times levelled with Pelé for with 12 career goals at the World Cup a record he goes on to break in 2006 when I think, you know, it's it's um, undeniable he is on the way down by this point. But by the time he retires, he, he's got 62 and 98 caps and his place in Brazilian kind of striking folklore is, is undeniable. Where does he sit for you among the Brazilian greats, you know, ever? Let's open it and keep it very broad because... There are a lot of them, but where where does he sit in that kind of pantheon of Brazilian uh, superstars? Uh, he has to be right up there. Um, there's always going to be that question of what could have been. You know, this guy who peaked at 23, who was on course for just all kinds of scoring records, just you know, dropping jaws wherever he went. Um, and he was doing it, he was producing on the international stage at the highest club level from, from day one. Um, even, you know, everything that went on in his career all the time he missed he still had as you mentioned a fantastic record uh, at international level achieved a lot on the international stage I think um, guys like Pele um, uh, for the older generation um, Garincha will probably be remembered yeah. as, as the greatest of the Brazilian players uh, for people of my generation you look at you look at guys like Ronaldo and Ronaldinho um, for me R- Ronaldo goes in the, it, it, even with all the caveats that his career had, for, for what he what he did in the nineties, what he did before that for that injury enter, is is in the conversation for being one of the greatest players of all time. Um, I think on pure ability ability level, um, for what he was able to do with the ball, um, the talent that he had, he might well have been the best Brazilian player of all time. Um, yeah. But we just you you can't, you can't 
you can't give him that distinction really because of because of what happened through North Fort was the way his career kind of petered sadly and you know it wasn't wasn't quite that same level that second act of his career um as good as yeah, it was yeah. so you probably have to say you know you, you're going to keep guys like Pele and uh maybe Grinch uh, maybe Ezekiel or something like that at the top but he's definitely in the conversation he, he I, I, I would say he's my favorite that's for sure my favorite Brazilian player of all time yes one of my favorite players um you think he means a lot to a certain generation for, for kids who grew up in the 90s he watched Serie A he watched La Liga he was the best player around so he's the, he's kind of always going to have a special place in the in, a, in the heart of that generation we'll come on to this shortly but yeah definitely my favorite brazilian given i'm 27 now so i was growing up very much when he was at the peak of his powers and obviously everything everyone and everything seems better and and, and, and brilliant when you're the younger you are but as i remember him he you know i've not seen anything like since so holds a very special place in my kind of football heart as well so before we finish we just wanted to get your kind of opinion i guess on two things Firstly, what is your favourite Ronaldo memory? I'll tell you mine afterwards and why it holds such significance for me. But looking back on his career as a whole, and I'll permit you to talk about something post-2000, even though this is a podcast focused on the 90s. Uh, what is it for you that stands out, that one abiding memory when you think of Ronaldo? Well, I was lucky enough to see him play in person. Um it was after wow. the injuries and things. It was it was uh, the year after they won the World Cup. Um, they were reigning uh, uh, Brazil were reigning world champions at the time. They played a friendly against Jamaica in Leicester at the what was Walker Stadium at the time. Why wouldn't uh, you? So yeah, I went along. Um, <laughs> sadly, um, Ronaldinho was injured for the game. By this point, Ronaldinho yeah. Yeah, was on his way to being the superstar he became as well. As it is a year after the World Cup, so you, you just moved to Barcelona. That's right. Yeah. yeah, he was injured. So instead, this uh, this. Uh, scrawny scruffy head lad called Kaka played in this place <laughs> so, <laughs> Whatever yeah. Happened to him. so yeah it was great it was you know Ronaldo Rivaldo Kaka Roberto Scott scored a, a worldie of a goal uh, got Caffrey's autograph but yeah so it was being able to see him in person uh, even though you know, he was kind of walking through the game uh, I did see him put the ball in the net it was this lad he was offside but it was still oh. next to him yeah, I can say I've seen uh, the great Ronaldo put the ball in the net so that's yeah. that's one of them if we talk about Ronaldo at his peak I think the abiding memory for me is the goal um, in the uh, UEFA Cup final for Inter against uh, Lazio, where he, um, you know, hit the step overs and the, the old Stanley Matthews drop of the shoulders, one on one the goalkeeper before just taking it around him and sliding at him. Um, it was just kind of very, very Ronaldo moment, bursting through on goal, going around the goalkeeper with, you know, a mixture of that 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 blend of pace, power, and and. Um, was a worldly skill that we, we talked about earlier and then a cool finish it kind of encapsulated uh, Ronaldo it was, it was him at his peak um, it was um, you know a big game to, to win a trophy um, yeah an iconic kit it's a beautiful kit, kit isn't it yeah. I was just going to say uh, this you know I think there's going to be a lot of kit uh, fetishizing on this podcast as the 90s were the, the kit uh the, the the era for kits for me but yeah it's a beautiful kit and i was gonna say watching it the the thing that strikes me is it's almost slow how he goes round. Uh, forgive me i'm not sure who the lazio keeper is but it almost feels like he's gone around slowly and you kind of think does that advantage the keeper but it was never in doubt either was it because that was what he specialized in rounding keepers and just leaving them red-faced Exactly, that was that was him all over. That was uh, it was just the archetypal Ronaldo goal in a, in a big moment. Um, so yeah, you can't really ask for ask for much more than that. Superb. Uh, for my part, I am actually going to go for uh, go against the grain and go with his goals in the 2002 World Cup final. And the, re- and the reason being twofold, really. I suppose I would have been ten at that point, uh, being a slightly younger than yourself, Ryan. Uh, it was the first. World Cup final I'd watched in full. I can remember 98, 94, obviously was way before my time. Uh, I'd have been two, but I can remember it, you know, the anticipation of what have you in the build-up and the the kind of, I guess at that point I was actually pretty unaware of what had happened at 98. I knew that France had beaten Brazil in the final, but everything that had gone before, but watching him, it was just through that tournament and that Brazil team, although they'll never be remembered as a brilliant Brazil team, they were the last Brazil team to win the World Cup. And so him kind of spearheading that and the goals that he scored, and as you alluded to earlier, one of them being an Oliver Kahn era, didn't detract from it. Um, so that that final for me really, really was quite something. And I can also say 
with no embarrassment, I had a Ronaldo Brazil, that 2002 blue away kit uh, with the wedge haircut and everything, Microsoft, <laughs> the little sort of two-inch figures, and playing with my brothers, playing sort of a version of Sabutio with power pods at that time. That Ronaldo scored all the goals every single time we played. And, you know, there was nothing to it apart from his uh, natural ability, I'm sure. The fact that I wanted him to score all the goals had nothing to do with it. He was, uh, as his nickname suggests, a, a phenomenon. To finish, I just wanted to ask where, in this era where we've had the kind of the last decade or more, probably just over dominated by two men, Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Lionel Messi. And, and and to this day, that's still the case. Where would, where would a Ronaldo, not a Ronaldo, where would the Ronaldo have sat uh, if we were comparing him with those two, had it been without the injuries? Would, would he have been in that? Um, well, surely he would have, but would he have eclipsed what they've achieved, do you think, on, on his kind of natural talent? Or would it, would it have very much been a three-pronged, you know, attack on the, the title to be the world's best? Um, it's difficult to say um, at the risk of uh, inviting a Twitter onslaught. Um, he, he was better than Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, whether he could have been as good as Messi, um, I think one puts Messi... Um, ahead of him, again, kind of through no fault of Ronaldo's own, is that uh, is the longevity, you know, to, to be able to perform that level for so long, yeah. and also the fact that he's kind of a midfielder as well as a as a striker. You know, he's the best passer in the world as well as the best finisher in the world and the best free kick taker. So whether he could have added those kind of strings to his bow, um, you know, we'll never know. Um, I think the fact I was still, if you talk about the best players I've ever seen. Um, Messi is is undisputed number one for me because of all those things. Uh, whether Ronaldo, who I would consider probably number two, the second best player I've ever seen, um, would be able to go on and achieve similar things over, over a similar amount of time, um, we'll never know. Again, it's it's, it's mm -hmm. that what if. Um, yeah, you know, he'd, he'd have been he'd have been right up there. He um, he wasn't benefiting from being in a weak era of, of talent uh, when he was, uh, when he was still he was still you know dominating as the, as the best player in the world so I'm sure he would have been competing with them um, or playing alongside them depending where he was at you know of course he played for you know, they have clubs in common um, so yeah he's, he, he'd have been right up there he was, he was a ridiculously gifted footballer um, who up until the point he his career was changed by injury. Was just was still getting better. Um, you know, he's becoming a leader as well. He was into captain there for a while, which is something that's forgotten about. Um, mm. So there's, there's no reason to think that he couldn't have gone on. And he was also that you know that inter team he was playing in. Um, he, he of course was the focal point of it, like Ronaldo and Messi are for their teams. But um, if you if just looking back to that 1998 um, UEFA Cup final against Lazio, it was they were still kind of playing a catamantry style of football. They had Fraser as a sweeper and you know, there were set, the ten outfield players, seven of them seven of them were defensive minded and it was kind of just left up to Jorge of Zamorano and Ronaldo to, to go and do the attacking. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not really the case for, for, for guys like Ronaldo and Messi who are serviced very well, um or have been, you know, through the peaks of their careers. Um so yeah, he was playing in a different era. I would I would argue uh, an era that was more difficult to put up the kind of numbers that the Messi and Ronaldo do these days. Whether they could do that back then. Um Well that's know, the flip side, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you never know. I think uh, you know, they still would have been hugely impactful players there, two of the best players of all time, but without question. Um they'd have been brilliant back then just as they are now. Um but you know, when we're comparing comparing statistics, I, I don't think I think kind of what Ronaldo and Messi have been able to do in the last decade or so has kind of warped reality and, and warped our view of what's gone in the, on in the past. Um, when, when we're comparing it to different eras, um, when you look at Messi scoring 93 goals in a calendar year, um, mm -hmm. it's just an incredible achievement. I don't anyone want to detract from that. I think it's one of the greatest you know, individual uh, achievements you know you can, you can you can point to, but um, would he be able to do that in, if he was playing in the 90s Serie A against guys like Baresi and Nesta and Cannavaro every week? Um, you know, perhaps not. Um, so you know you've got to you got to look at Ronaldo's numbers and try and think back to the year that he was doing it in and appreciate them for, for just how off the scale they were back then. Um, so yeah, he's he's an all-time great for what he what he achieved in his career. He probably you know would have been. 
in the conversation for great Stella had he gone on to achieve what, what he could have were it not for his injuries. I'm going to leave the last word to another legend of the game, Quinton Fortune of <laughs> Atletico Madrid at the time. Um, I just I saw this earlier in my research and I thought this was a nice quote and I think it just sums the man up brilliantly. Uh, at the time, obviously, Atletico Madrid defender coming up against Real Madrid, uh, uh, sorry, Barcelona in La Liga at that point and he said, as a kid, I wanted to be Pele. I bought all the books, all the videos, and I studied what it could be like to be the best. I set off on that path. Then I met Ronaldo. Some players were technical, some were quick, some were strong, some were smart. Ronaldo was all of those. He was a beast. It was unfair to everyone else. And I think that just sums him up nicely. Thank you very much for listening. And Ryan, thank you ever so much for joining us for the inaugural episode of You, Me and Ronaldo Luis Nazario de Lima today. Thank you very much for your time. We'll be back in the coming weeks and months with regular episodes discussing legends of the 90s. They will, I'm sure, inevitably like Ronaldo. Some of them straddle the 2000s as well. But we thought that this was the per- Ronaldo was the perfect person to start this series with. Thank you for your listening, and we will be back soon. <laughs>